The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you heard it, learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us of your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sacred City. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my uh, joy to preach the Word of God to you this morning. Um, We're going to continue our study through the book of Colossians. And if you're just joining us, we have a couple free gifts for you. Everybody loves a free gift. Uh, Out at our welcome area, there is a scripture journal. It's got the entire letter of Colossians that we're studying in it and some space for you to take notes and highlight and circle some things. And there's also kind of like a graphic out there. It's a big piece of paper, poster size. It's kind of like um, a comic book thing, but it's an overview of the book of Colossians. And so uh, you can color that if you like to do that kind of thing, or you can just look at it, read through it, post it up. It helps kind of create a visual to help you understand the book of Colossians. We hope that uh, you are taking advantage of that. And uh, as I said, it's my joy to bring the word of God to you. I am so thankful that we have a church that loves to hear and loves to study the Word of God. And uh, man, I'm just excited to get into it this morning. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right into it. We've got a lot of work to do. So, Father, um, we lift your name up on high. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Word, that uh, we only come to know you. We can kind of look at creation and see some general things about you. You've revealed yourself to us in nature. But the most uh, direct way and clear way you've revealed yourself to us is through your word. And so as we study your word, this old book, this old letter, we can come to see you in clearer, um, fresher ways. And so I pray this morning that you would help us as we do that, that you'd think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you'd help me see you clearly and um, declare your truth to your people, that you would open our eyes, you would open our ears, and you would soften our heart to receive your truth. That all of this would be for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. All right, if you want to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 with me. Um, I had our reader read verses 3 through 8, though we've already kind of covered 3 through 5, but I wanted to read that to put this section of Scripture in a little bit of a larger context for us. Um, But mainly we're just going to study, we're going to drill down into verses 5 through 8. Now, if you're with us last week, last week we learned that the word gospel means good news. And for Paul, the gospel was the good news of what Jesus, the Son of God, had done to reconcile the whole world back into right relationship with God. That Jesus had finally put right what mankind had broken uh, since the garden with Adam and Eve. They sinned and Everything kind of unraveled since then, and it had been thousands of years, and now Jesus steps into the scene as the Son of God, and he does what all mankind has failed to do, and he lives the perfect life that honors God, and then he dies as a substitutionary death for all sinners, reconciling God and mankind and bringing renewal to God's good creation. Now, um, according to Paul, this word gospel, it isn't just what Jesus has done in the past. It also includes the work that Jesus is currently doing in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father and the work Jesus will do when he comes back again to finally restore and renew all things where the new heavens and the new earth come together and we get to live in a new recreated world with God as his people. So, to put it short, short and sweet, the gospel is a message, it's good news of what Jesus has done is doing, and will do, all right? But it's also a power that's at work in the world, okay? So it's that message of everything Jesus is doing 
and has done, but it's also a power unleashed on the world. And today we're going to take a look at that power and we're going to take a look and see what it's doing um, around the world and what it's doing uh, even in your own soul if you, can, if you bring it in and let it uh, go down deep, okay? So I want to draw your attention to two ways the gospel grows from verses five and six. Let's read it together. Uh, verse five, because of, we're in the middle of a sentence here. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, there it is, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, look, as it also does among you. Okay, so we've got two ways the gospel is growing here. Paul says, one, the gospel is growing in the whole world. And secondly, he's saying the gospel is growing in you. So let me summarize by saying the gospel grows two ways. The gospel grows deep and the gospel grows wide. Let's first take a look and see how the gospel grows wide. When Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing across the whole world, he's actually pointing out something that is unique to Christianity. In the other major world religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, the bulk of their followers are still located where those religions were founded. So in the Middle East, India, and Asia. That's where you're going to find almost all, the majority of their followers. Right? Not so in Christianity. Christianity is different. Paul says, and of course, this was written in the first century. Um, so he's only had, you know, 30 years or so to see the gospel expand and the gospel expand. But Paul's sitting here in, the, in, in where he's at, and he's saying, I saw the gospel go to Rome. I saw the gospel leave Jerusalem, go to Rome, go to Ephesus, go to Col Colossae, go to Laodicea. Go. He's seeing the gospel move around. Go to Africa. He's seeing the go gospel expand, right? He's saying the gospel itself is on the move, moving out from the center. And we see this is really different from other world religions where kind of people go to Mecca and they go to these places. Um, the exact opposite is of true of Christianity. The gospel is something that actually goes out and spreads. And that is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. In fact, from our vantage point, 2,000 years after Paul wrote this, we actually have a better view than Paul does, that the gospel is still expanding and spreading across the globe. I've got a slide that if we could put up there. Uh, today, there are 277 million Christians, or at least people that claim to be Christians, in North America, right? <clears throat> but while, and many of us would look at our society and we'd say, okay, yeah, but it's obviously Christianity has slowed. The gospel has kind of stopped expanding across the North America. In Europe and in the North, North America, it's kind of in decline a little bit. That is true. But the gospel is actually still spreading and spreading the fastest in places like Africa and Asia. Okay? Um, and now the, really the, the center of Christianity is actually in the global south. Look at that, 601 million Christians in Latin America, right? That's twice as many than in North America, all right? We are not the center of Christianity any longer, right? And now this year, for the first year in history, Africa has more Christians than any other continent on the globe at 631 million. Now, this is important for us to think about. The gospel is still on the move, growing and expanding out from where it started in Jerusalem. That means God is still at work bringing redemption and renewal around the globe. Just because things seem to be getting dark and our society seems to be getting more and more secular does not mean that Christianity is somehow failing. No, Christianity is still growing. The gospel is still expanding. It's just not growing that fast in America. It's growing fast in Asia and Africa. So much so that Africa has now begun sending missionaries back to the United States of America. Interesting. 
Now, this is one of the reasons that we want to continue to grow as a church. That the gospel takes ground. The gospel expands. The gospel spreads out. That means if we're preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel and living lives shaped by the gospel, that our gatherings are going to grow. That our missional communities are going to grow and they're going to expand and they're going to multiply and we're going to have to plant more churches, right? This is why our, our mission of our church is to make disciples to plant churches and to renew our city. That the gospel, we want the gospel to expand to every neighborhood in our city and more and more and more people come to believe it and hear the good news. But we don't want to be a church that's just an inch deep and a mile wide. The gospel doesn't just grow wide, it's meant to grow deep. And it's meant to go so deep in us. We, we see this in, in the second half of verse six where Paul says the gospel isn't just growing and bearing fruit around the world. It's still bearing fruit in the lives of the believers in Colossae. Now, this is interesting. We said this last week, but it, it needs repeating. We need to hear this every single week, actually, probably every single day. The gospel isn't just for those pagans out there. The gospel isn't just for those poor tribal people in some continent on the earth where they've never heard it before and they need to know that if they believe it, they can go to heaven when they die. No, 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 no. That's a truncated view of the gospel. That's a diminished view of the gospel. Paul says the gospel is growing around the globe. New people are coming to hear it and coming to believe it and coming to experience its power. But the gospel is also bearing fruit and growing among you. And that you there is plural. That means it's not just individuals, it's the church. That Paul's looking in at the church and he says the gospel is bearing fruit right there among you. Now that's interesting. Because we oftentimes think, okay, you know, those people that never heard about Jesus, they need the gospel. What do we need? We need something. I need something deep. Well, there's nothing deeper than the gospel. Amen. And the gospel is meant to go deep into us. Paul very pointedly here says, this gospel is growing among you. And listen, here's it is, here it is. As you hear it and understand the grace of God in truth. Do you see that? Look, look in verse six. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit increasing as it also does among you. Look, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is what Paul's saying. When you believe the gospel, that gospel is meant to come into your life. It changes you. It makes you into a new creation. But that gospel begins to bear fruit forever in your life. Forever. It never stops bearing. It's the tree of life in your soul. The gospel keeps bearing fruit season after season after season. But it only bears fruit as we understand it. Now, what does that mean? That word there in the Greek, understand or understood, is epigenosko. And it means, listen, to discern something clearly. To know something in a personal way that necessitates a reaction. Now, this is interesting. The, the gospel demands a reaction. The gospel demands a response. If you hear the good news of the gospel, you have to react in some way. You either rejoice and accept it and it's good news to you or you reject it and you hate it and you push away from it. The gospel isn't something that comes to you and you just huh, blow it off. No, it can't be. If you, under, you don't understand it if it's like that. The gospel is a message that changes everything. And so Paul says, just like Jesus, people who met Jesus, nobody was just like, oh, Jesus, he's, he's all right. No, they hated him or they loved him. They fell at his feet and worshiped him as the son of God or they ran from him or begged him to leave. Jesus casted out all these demons and they went into this pig and all the people came back and go, leave our area, please, right? No one has a mild reaction to Jesus. If you have a uh, reaction to Jesus, it shows that you're just not thinking about him well. You don't really, you're not being intellectually consistent and actually listening to what he said or examining what he did. You've kind of got a lukewarm version of Jesus and not a clear picture of the real Jesus. The same is true for the gospel. 
when you understand the gospel, you realize it's not just Jesus died for my sins. It goes much deeper than that and changes everything about everything because the gospel is ultimately about the renewal of all things. It's not just about you going to heaven when you die. It's bigger than that. Now, this is revealed to me often when I ask somebody, um, do you know what the gospel is or what's the gospel? And many times they, they can rattle off kind of uh, Christianity 101 answer. Oh, the gospel. Yeah, I know what that is. Jesus died for my sins. I said, okay, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. They've heard it. They can recall it. But then Christianity 201, let's just say, like the next step in that, Jesus died for my sins. Great, right? My three-year-old knows that. That's awesome. It's good. Tipped your toe into the, you know, the kiddie pool, stepped into it. There it is. But then the next step, I say, okay, do you know how the gospel changes the way you relate to your work? Or how does the gospel change the way that you relate to your spouse? How does the gospel change the way you parent your children? How does the gospel change the way you relate with your money or you use your money? How does the gospel change the way that you go about becoming a good person? Because most people want to form their character in some way. They want to become a better person, a kinder person, a more generous person, a more loving person. And there's a million different ways out there to form your character. There's stoicism and there's moralism and there's the Jewish way and there's the Islamic way and there's all of these different ways to become a quote-unquote good person. How does the gospel change the way you go about becoming a good person and you grow in, growing in character? Now, many times when I ask a person, which is really just step two of the gospel, how does the gospel impact whatever? Right? They just give me the blank stare and you just see it go over their eyes. Like, isn't there something else we can talk about? (laughs) If you're a Christian, no, there's not. This is it. This is the only message we've got. It's the gospel. And we want to get down in it and understand how it changes everything. How its roots go down into our soul and it doesn't leave any area untouched. See, When someone gets Jesus died for my sins, but then they're a cruel boss. They don't get the gospel. When a person, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but then they're unfaithful to their spouse. They don't get the gospel. Yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but they're meek as a mouse and they can never share their faith with anyone. They don't get the gospel. See, When a person really understands the gospel, they realize that the gospel doesn't just deal with one little aspect of my life, like salvation getting me to some ethereal heaven when I die. It's more than that. See, the message of the gospel affects everything. Now, why? How? Okay. Paul Paul uses this one little phrase here. And he says, this is is what he says. Verse 6. So since the day you heard it and understood, so there's got to be an understanding, a second level, let's say, look, the grace of God in truth. That's the phrase Paul uses. We're going to break that down. The grace of God in truth. First, I want to look at truth. That means the gospel has to deal with reality. The gospel isn't make-believe. The gospel is for the real world. The gospel isn't just about heaven when we die. The gospel is about living our life every single day. It's about the realities that we experience. And one of those main realities is this. Here, this is big. I'm going to pull it out and just go really big here. Pull out 3,000 foot. Here's the reality. God exists. God is great. God is glorious. God is holy. That means he's perfect in action, perfect in word, perfect in deed, perfect in himself. He's completely good. He's completely happy. He doesn't need anyone. He never does anything wrong. Everything that happens has happened according to his plan and it's perfect, good, right, and true. That's God. That's what God, that's what it means to be holy. And then there's us, right? We're not that, right? We're not holy, We are broken. We are sinful. We make mistakes. We're not completely beautiful. He's the source of all beauty. Right? 
We've been on a downward trajectory since puberty, right? It's, sorry, it's been happening, right? Right? God is completely good. We're sometimes good. God is completely true. Sometimes true. So we are, se- we are different from God. We are other than God. We are other. Now, that's a problem there, right? And many of us, we realize, to summarize all of this, God is enough. God is everything of everything, okay? Now listen, and to summarize, we as his creatures who've fallen into sin, we are not enough. Of whatever it is, we're not enough. In a lot of ways, we fall short and fail. Now this is, here it is, this is a, this has to do with reality. This is a universal truth that every single human being feels at some points in their life, many times often, many times every day and every moment of their life. It is a human reality to feel that you are not enough. How many of us constantly feel like we're just not quite smart enough? Don't raise your hand. That'd be awkward. All right. How many of us feel like we're just not strong enough? We don't have the mental toughness enough. I don't have the self-control. I can't resist temptation. I'm not good. I'm not tough enough. I'm not strong enough. How many of us feel like we're just, you know what? I'm just not popular enough. I, I don't have enough friends. I don't, I'm not loved enough. I'm not accepted enough. We look in the mirror and we're reminded, I'm just not beautiful enough. Right? God has no flaws. God is perfect and we know we are not. And we recognize our flaws often. Very easy for us to look in the mirror and recognize everything that's wrong about us. Now, I could literally go on and on. I think every human who's not a sociopath recognizes the fact that we are not enough in a lot of ways. Right? That I'm not patient enough. I'm, I'm not bold enough sometimes. I'm not kind enough. I'm not gentle enough. I'm not wealthy enough, successful enough. And if I ask any Christian, here's the one universal truth. How's your prayer life? I'm not praying enough. That's what they always say. Every Christian always says it. I'm not praying enough. What is that? We always feel like we're not enough. That's part of being not God. And now listen, this is what that feels like. Most of the time, because we have this sense in our souls that we're not good enough, we walk around life dealing with a lot of internal stuff going on, feelings of guilt and shame. And guilt basically says, there's this objective standard out there of what I should be doing and I'm not meeting it. And so guilt says, I've done things that are wrong. I've lied. I've cheated. I haven't worked hard enough. I've been lazy. Whatever. Guilt says, I've done something wrong and I deserve to be punished for it. But things shouldn't go well for me because I've broken the law. I've broken God's commands. But then shame looks at the standard and goes, oh, clearly other people must be able to meet that standard. So clearly there must be something wrong with me. And I don't deserve to be loved. Now, here's the reality. If guilt and shame go unaddressed in your soul, they wreak havoc there. It's like a piece of rotten fruit sitting in your fruit basket. It just spreads to everything else. When guilt and shame go unaddressed in our soul, they spoil our entire world, inner world. They change the way we feel about ourselves. We are, we, we're depressed, we're despondent, we feel less than all the time. They change the way we think. They change the way we relate to other people. We doubt others, we're afraid of others. We keep our distance from others. And of course, because everything's about the gospel, it also changes the way we relate to God. We think God is always mad at us. God is always frustrated with us. God is always going, really? Come on, pick it up, make it happen. What's wrong with you? 
Now listen, I was reminded of this as I watched the new documentary on the life of Aaron Hernandez. If you, it's on Netflix, if you haven't seen it. Uh, Aaron Hernandez was by all appearances the all-American man. Right? He was born into a middle-class family. He was super good-looking dude, right? 6'2", 245 pounds, tall, dark, and handsome. He, his family is pretty normal, American family. He's got, his, he's got his mother and a father. They're living on the same roof. He, phenomenal football player. He goes on to go to the University of Florida, plays with Tim Tebow, wins a national championship. Beat Bama. Then he was drafted by the New England Patriots at the age of 20. Two years later, he gets awarded a $40 million contract and won a Super Bowl, catching pass, catching touchdowns in a Super Bowl. When you look at Aaron, everything in his life, it looked like, was exactly how you would write it, right, as an American. And yet, Aaron Hernandez's exterior life was much bigger and more beautiful than his interior life. He had all kinds of insecurities and fears and wounds and brokenness going on in his soul. And here's the reality. No amount of exterior success or accomplishment can heal what's wrong in your soul. See, when we're living our life day to day, the soul seems like such a small and insignificant thing. Like, don't just ignore your emotions. Ignore how you're feeling. Just suck it up and push harder and get after it and, and accomplish whatever that thing is that you want to accomplish. You don't have time to think about your feelings or how does the gospel relate to that or what's God doing. Just suck it up and put your head down and go. And yet, it's small and insignificant like the rudder on a ship is. Right? The rudder on a ship is small and insignificant except for the fact that it determines and directs the direction of the ship, of the entire ship. And our soul does the same thing. If our soul is bent or broken, it's only a matter of time before our outside life begins to reflect what's going on the inside of us. Hear me. You can't just go on living with a broken soul and not expect that to, to manifest itself on the outside of your life. Even though Aaron Hernandez had it all, good looks, more money than he knew what to do with, success, Super Bowl championship, popularity, people literally sung his name, bought his jersey, praised this guy, loved this guy. Even though he had all of that, you're watching the documentary. He ends up murdering a man, at least one person, possibly more, being convicted and sentenced to life in prison where he kills himself. And, you're, and everyone who watches this, almost everyone who watches this, they say one thing, how could that happen? Dude, you've got it all. What are, why are you doing those crazy things? Now, everybody wants to blame it on something. Well, his dad died when he was 16. Well, he possibly had CTE. Well, he had all kind of stuff going on in his soul and with his sexuality and all kind of stuff going on. Listen, so does everyone in the world. The reality is... The, the wounds of his soul went unaddressed because oh, the only thing he knew to work with is exterior tools. See, that's what the world offers us. We have soul problems, but our world, our Western society says, oh, the soul's not even real. No, you're only an organic body. That's all you are. All you are is atoms. All you are is carbon. All you are is some neurons firing. There is no soul. There is no afterlife. And so we have these problems, these issues in a place that our society says doesn't exist. What are we going to do about it? 
So why, this is one of the reasons we have so much depression, so much suicide, so much brokenness, so much inner emptiness in our society is because we have a wound somewhere that our society says doesn't even exist. Well, that's a problem. Now listen, that guilt and shame that every human feels, that's an inner wound, that's an inner that's damage done to your soul that's got to be addressed. And so here's what our society does do. Tries to distract us, tries to get us to do something different. Here's at least three ways that our society teaches us to heal something wrong in our soul. Okay, these don't work, but we try real hard at it. Here's three. One, buy your way out of it. Now, our American culture has really tapped into the reality that we all feel like we're not enough, okay? So that's in line with Christianity. We feel like we're not enough. But then what it does is it offers a cure that doesn't solve the problem. The cure is this. We've capitalized on it. Modern marketing is actually built on the concept of making us feel like our current reality is not enough. And then pr promising us that if we buy their product, we finally, we, we finally will be enough. So we feel like we're not enough. We see the commercials. We see all the stuff around us. And we say, you know what? I can buy myself out of this feeling. So we go on a shopping spree. We Amazon it right away. Right? I need that thing. Right? We think I need a new pair of whatever. I need a pair of shoes. You know what else? A cute shirt will solve it. I feel insecure. Nothing in my closet is nice. Nothing works. I've had it over like six months. Right? So we, we go out and we got to get it. New pair of Lulus. That's what I need. Right? Or my favorite, <laughs> my favorite. Like the, the commercials at Christmas time are just obnoxious, right? Couple comes out. Oh, I got you something for Christmas. Well, I got you something for Christmas. Oh, yeah, it's in the driveway. Well, yours is in the driveway, honey. They go out. Oh, we both bought each other $100,000 cars. They have bows on it, right? You know, I just swiped the debit card, honey. Oh, I did too. You won't even notice that $200,000 that's missing, right? <laughs> right? How obnoxious. But what is it? You know what? That car you have, got an analog speedometer. <laughs> your, your side mirrors don't even blink. Oh, dude, you still don't have LEDs on your headlights? Oh, oh. And you start thinking, I think I do need some LEDs on my headlights. I think I need a new $40,000 vehicle. That'll make me feel better. Right? Now, that's the big obnoxious one. But sometimes we just need to treat ourselves, right? We just need a $6 coffee. That's all we need. I feel like I'm not enough. I need a $6 coffee right now, <laughs> right? And a $6 pastry because I'm feeling extra special. <laughs> now, so many of us, we're masking this guilt and shame, this feeling in our soul of not being enough. We're masking it through buying things. Now, listen, here's what's interesting. So many of our society are doing this that our, our economy would actually collapse if we all stopped buying things we didn't need. Like right now, just buying the stuff that we don't need, if we stopped doing it, our economy would collapse. Because it's built on this reality of feeling like we're not enough and then trying to mask that reality through buying stuff. Now, for one, you can try to buy your way out of that feeling. It doesn't work. Secondly, you can try to work your way out of it. This is the false remedy that I am most prone to. Any feeling of insecurity can be overcome through hard work. This has got to be the American gospel here. This is the gospel according to David Goggins or Jocko Willink. You feel weak? Good. Work harder. Wake up earlier. Run longer. Lift heavier. If you feel intellectually secure, good. Study more. Get better grades. Go get those degrees upon degrees upon degrees. And at the end of that, you're finally going to feel smart enough. You're finally going to feel good enough and strong enough, except you won't. 
the more you achieve, the more fearful you become of losing it. Many times, the more beautiful you are as a teenager, the more painful the process of aging is. Not always. The stronger you are, the more fearful you are of getting weak or getting out of shape. The smarter you are, the more you've accomplished through your academics, the more fearful you become of forgetting things and looking foolish. You can never really work your way out of these inner feelings of guilt and shame. And third, this is a newer phenomenon, I think, in our society today. It's a new approach that we're just kind of pretending that our feelings of guilt and shame aren't real. So this, this is kind of gaining speed in our culture right now. And this stream, it's not based in reality at all. It actually rejects reality. It's make-believe. It says the internal doubt you feel that you aren't enough, well, that's actually not real. Don't believe that. Girlfriend, you are enough. Right? You are perfect just the way you are. Now, this is being, this is like the parenting practice that's being pushed upon us right now. Parenting used to be getting this little child that knew nothing about anything and it had to be taught everything about everything, right? And so you had to teach this little child what foolishness is, right? And how to grow up into wisdom. And there was a whole lot of no's and there a whole lot of, nope, you can't do that. Nope, that's not good enough. Nope, we got to keep, there was a whole lot of correction along the way where now the reality, the, 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 the process is, no, 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 your child is actually perfect, what your job as a parent is to do, to partner with the child to bring out that inner perfection into the world so the world can experience their perfection and embrace it and enjoy it and then all will all just be happy and get along forever. Being taught that you're perfect and the world will adjust to your feelings is not reality. And this has become the bane of teachers, co <laughs> coaches, bosses, and spouses. Here's the deal. If little Johnny grows up thinking they're perfect their whole life, when that one teacher who has an objective standard writes F on the paper, Mom is shocked, what? My child, he's not an F student, he's creative. He's creative. No, he failed the test. I was gonna say something else, but he failed the test. He's not that creative, right? There's, no, there's something wrong with your, you need to change your teaching style for Johnny. No, no. Johnny needs to get with the program and study the stuff on the test and he'll get an A or a B next time. Mom, you hold Johnny to a standard. Now listen, this is coaches, same thing. Hey, bud, you dropped the ball. You made a mistake. It wasn't my fault. It was, right? It's just on down the line. And God forbid little Johnny grows up as perfect Johnny and he gets married and real life Jane goes, oh, no, you're not perfect. Oh, what your mom told you your whole life? She was lying to you. What you do with your laundry and what you do with your dishes, that's not perfect. That's gross, actually. Right? And this, I, I'm joking and kind of being facetious about it, but this is a real life problem in our world today. People, listen. And I don't want to get on this too much, but I got a little bit of time. And there's no third service, so I'm good. <laughs> there are real life winners and losers. So when you say, who won this soccer game? And you say, we all did. You're lying. <laughs> that's not real. There's no game if that's true. Someone lost and someone won. Now, the same is true if you're... If you're, I'm just going to say, if you're very overweight, right, you can't just say, well, that's healthy. Well, that's not healthy. That's clearly not healthy. That's a lie. 
Now, we don't have to judge. We don't have to guilt or shame anybody for that, but it's not reality. You can't say that 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 is healthy or that is good. It's not good. No matter what our culture decides is beautiful for the moment or is acceptable for the moment, it's not healthy. There's an objective standard that that deviates from. Now, the same is true. We could go down the line. Winners aren't losers. Losers aren't winners. Healthy is not unhealthy. Unhealthy is not healthy. Male is not female. I could go down the line. You can't base your life in something that's not real. Now, all three of these common, all three of these common ways to deal with our internal feels, feelings that something's wrong with us, there's a guilt and shame going on that we're just not enough, that we've done things that we shouldn't have done and we believe there's something wrong with us and if everyone really knew us, they wouldn't love us. The problem with all those approaches that our culture gives us is they just don't work. They just don't work. They only at best numb the feelings for a moment. But listen, here's the deal. You have to keep buying things. You have to keep increasing your work capacity or you have to keep on denying reality to feel good about yourself. And all three of those approaches are exhausting. You gotta be either a billionaire to keep spending money, 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 right? You, gotta, you can never run out of energy to keep working, working, working and you keep having to deny reality. Well, de- denying reality is like trying to keep a beach ball underwater. Soon as you run out of time and effort, boom, that thing's coming back up. Because it's reality. Don't fight against reality. But the Apostle Paul shows us a a way to deal with our sense of not being enough that is both based in reality, it's in truth, but it actually brings healing, brings rest, and brings freedom because it isn't based in our own efforts at all. It's based in this one thing that no one can earn. And Paul here says, the grace of God. Now, what is the grace of God? Well, the grace of God, first off, it's a synonym of the gospel. So everything the gospel means, the grace of God also means. But the grace of God is more than just a concept. It's also a person. Jesus is the personification of grace. And what did Jesus do? See, Jesus, now here it is. Here's the gospel that can change you if you let it go into you, if you let it go deep into you, below the surface. First off, let's just start with reality. It's in line with reality. So grace tells us and the gospel tells us we aren't enough. We're here. God's here. We're not God. We aren't enough, right? We have fallen short in our devotion to God and we've fallen short in our love for our neighbor in a million different ways. Because of that, now here it is. Because of that, we deserve actual judgment. The Bible tells us we deserve judgment. Now, it's hard to understand, maybe. I don't have time to go into it too much. We, I can answer it for you afterwards if I need to. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve judgment, separation from God. Listen, so this is what the Bible says first. That guilt and shame that you feel for being not enough, that's real. That's real. It's testifying to the reality of the situation that we're not enough. But here's Grace. Jesus took our place. That means all of the judgment that we deserve, all of the banishment, all of the rejection, all of of hell and everything that goes with it that we deserve for our sins, Jesus took on the cross for us. He absorbed it. He absorbed the wrath of God that was due to us. And now... Because of Jesus, we don't get what we deserve, rejection, pushed away. We get what Jesus deserved. Now, what do I mean by what did Jesus deserve? Jesus lived a perfect life. He never disobeyed God. He never sinned against his fellow man. He loved everyone perfectly. Jesus lived the perfect life. And what do you get for living a perfect life? Well, you get heaven. You get God. You get glory. That's what you get if you live a perfect life. And Jesus, though that's what he deserved, he took our place and took our punishment for us. And now when we believe the gospel, we get what he deserved through his life. We get love. 
we get unearned acceptance. Unearned by us. It was earned by Jesus. We get unconditional approval. When you look at Jesus and Jesus, before he starts his ministry, he gets baptized and the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit comes down and you hear the father say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus had done any miracles, he hadn't healed the sick. He hadn't cast out demons. He hadn't taught a bunch. He hadn't died on the cross. The father looked at him and says, I love you. I approve of you. You're my son. He wanted everybody to know it. Now listen to me. If you are in Christ, that's what the Father says to you. You're mine. I approve of you. I enjoy you. I delight you in you. You're my son. You're my daughter. He doesn't look and go, how well have you been doing today? Now, this is how the gospel goes deep in our life and begins to heal those wounds. It, it goes in deep and it starts healing wounds, removing the guilt, wiping away the shame and bringing a, literally a total freedom of the soul. The Christian has a resource at their disposal that's unlike anything else in the world, something that brings total liberation to their soul. But we have to know it and we have to understand it to be able to take it down into the real issues that are going on under the surface in our souls that maybe nobody else is aware of. Let's do some inventory on our souls this morning. Do you know why you're so insecure? Why can you only share your successes with others? And you feel so afraid to let anyone see your failures. Let me answer that for you. First off, because you haven't brought the gospel into that area of your soul and understood it there. Now let's do that. Let's try to do that together. I want you to ask yourself, why am I so, and I'm only going to have time to do a couple illustrations here, right? But I'm, hopefully I can teach us the process. Why am I, ask yourself this, why am I so driven at work or in my career? Why am I so compelled to accomplish more and more and more and so unable to slow down and rest? Why am I so afraid of telling my boss no or looking bad in front of my boss or in front of my coworkers. Now you might see that it's because that deep down you know, well, clearly I'm not enough. You're afraid that someday everybody else is actually gonna find you out. This is almost every highly successful person that I meet with, they have this fear. They've overcome a lot in their life and they've gotten to this stage in their life, but yet they still feel the insecurities and the inner wounds that says you're not enough, you're not enough. And they have this fear that one day they're gonna fail and everyone around them is actually going to expose them and go, I knew it, you're not enough. That they've got this idea that somehow they've made it, but they're faking it. And everybody's going to really find out that they're actually not as successful or as brilliant as they thought they were. Okay, now listen, realizing that, seeing that, that's kind of like step one to gospeling yourself, bringing the gospel in. See the motivations behind it. Okay, I, I'm really craving people's approval. I'm really afraid that I'm going to be found out and I'm going to look foolish. Okay, step one, that's good. Now bring the gospel into that fear. Well, the gospel tells me that Jesus Christ knows me better than I know myself. That means he already knows I'm a sinner. He already knows I'm not enough. In fact, he knows that I'm worse than I thought. And it's so true that I am not enough, but the gospel also tells me that Jesus died for me when I was a sinner. That means Jesus saw me and said, oh, he's not enough. I'm coming to save him. So at the, the lowest point of my life, 
right? Where I seem to be drowning in my failures and drowning in my insecurities and drowning in my fears. That's where Jesus reached down and saved me and rescued me. Now, what does that mean? That means the love of God isn't based on how well I am doing at life. God's love isn't going to be removed from me when I, when I fail him. God's not going to be like, oh, he is a moron. Take his love away. Oh, he's, oh. God's not going to discover something about you. Even though you will, you'll discover worse things about yourself. It's maturity. Oh, discover things about yourself, didn't know that. Yeah, but God doesn't. He'll never remove his love from you. Now think about that. See, when I believe that, when I believe, okay, yes, I am that bad, I am that foolish, I am not enough, and yet because of Jesus, God loves me just the way that I am, I can finally rest. More than just rest, I am now free to let others into my weaknesses and failures. See, the gospel overcomes my insecurity because my performance at work and the approval from my boss and my coworkers isn't what defines me. My identity is eternally secure in Jesus. So I can literally breathe. I can be free to fail. I can be free to make mistakes. I can be free to rest. Because I'm not on the treadmill earning something anymore. Now, let's do this with one more area. Let's do this with the fruit of the Spirit, patience. Ask yourself, why are you so impatient? Why are you always rushed, always in a hurry? And in any moment of quiet or peace, you reach for your phone to fill the stillness and silence. It's because you haven't brought the gospel to bear on that part of your soul. So in at least one way, you aren't believing the gospel. You are afraid of slowing down. You are afraid of boredom, of feeling unneeded, irrelevant, of missing out on something. Your kids think their name is hurry up, hurry up. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And then we get them somewhere and we're like, calm down, calm down, calm down. <laughs> you are still defining yourself by how much you can get done in a day. You are still trying to relate to God, the world, and your own soul through your own performance. But the gospel tells us, Jesus has already performed perfectly for us and his record has been credited to us. Therefore, we can slow down. We can do life at a new pace, the pace of a walk like Jesus did and still accomplish everything in life that we're called to accomplish. That Jesus said, I've done it all that the Father gave me to do. And yet Jesus took naps. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Jesus took, in the midst of a busy day, he, oh, I gotta go, I need some silence and solitude with God. I'm going out on the boat. My boys are going fishing. And yet he accomplished everything that the Father called him to accomplish. Hurry might be our culture's most besetting sin. It's interesting. If you look back 
I think it was in the 40s, there's studies done that technology was advancing at a rapid pace and they were looking into the future and they're saying, listen, guys, we have to start preparing now. I mean, presenting before Congress, we have to start preparing now. By the 2000s, we're going to have so much free time, we're not going to know what to do. So we're going to have to do a lot of, we've got to create more recreation and waste for recreation because all this technology, we're just going to sit around like the Jetsons and do nothing, right? Like Wall-E, that's all we're going to do. Well, is that your experience? Is that your reality? You got too much free time, don't know what to do with it, right? And yet it's kind of true. I doubt anyone, very few of us this morning, there's probably a few of us that woke up and, and milked their cows this morning, got your milk for your cereal, it's a little cold to churn butter this morning, but you got it done, right? Right? Probably sewed some sweaters together, put the clothes on your back, right? Went out and chopped firewood to heat your house, right? No, we're not doing any of these things, and yet where has the time gone? Think about stay-at-home moms. Love you. A lot different today than it used to be, right? None of that. We're not doing any of that. Right? But what, do we feel free? Do we feel like, oh, I got so much free time. Free time coming out my ears. Right? Absolutely not. No. Why? Because there's something in our souls that's hurrying. Like the free time we have whoop, just gets filled with other stuff. Technology has actually made the problem worse in a lot of ways. Do you know how to take the gospel down into that sin? Having a hurried soul is a sin. Intimacy never happens in a hurry. You have to slow down to be intimate with one another to be intimate with God, to be intimate with your own soul, to know what's going on in your soul, you have to slow down. Now listen, this, this is what, this process, we call it around, you're preaching the gospel to yourself. And it might be something you have to do on a day, no, an hour by hour, minute by minute process. Maybe every time you look at your phone, you actually preach the gospel to yourself because maybe you're looking at your phone to find meaning and to find purpose and to find significance. And instead of looking to your phone to find that, you go back and you look to God to find that. When you pull up at the stoplight and you're just naturally grabbing the phone to fill that one minute of silence, maybe you take that to God instead. But you can't just do this by yourself. You also need a missional community. You need a fight club. You need people in your life who can look into you and see areas that you're not seeing yourself and can preach the gospel to you. Because when you're not believing the gospel, most of the time you don't even know you're not. You just feel bad. Something feels off. And you need somebody else to preach the good news of the gospel to your soul. Now, this, this is where the gospel does its best work. It goes deep in us. And it does its work in the darkest, deepest, most vulnerable places in our souls in our wounds, in our fears, in our desires, in our need to be loved unconditionally and eternally. And it's there, in that spot in your soul, where you hear the Father say, I love you. I'm well pleased with you because of Jesus. And if you've never heard that, if you're in this room this morning, you've never heard the Father say that, I'm offering Jesus to you this morning. I'm offering those words Put your faith in Jesus Christ and hear the Father say, I am well pleased in you and let him heal those wounds. For those of us who have been, who have heard this gospel, who have embraced it, who have believed it, today is another opportunity for us to go deeper into it or let it go deeper into us. And once again, the Father is going to accept us as we are and he's going to meet us where we are and he's going to feed us where we are. We're bringing our inner brokenness to him and he's going to give us the bread the body of Christ to satisfy us. He's going to give us the, the wine, the blood of Christ to cover all of our sins. Once again, Jesus meets our every need here this morning. Jesus, we thank you for being enough. 
We thank you for being over everything. Father, we thank you for being a God of extra, a God of overabundance, a God that has everything we need, and you being a God of grace who gives us what we need even when we don't deserve it, in spite of what we deserve. I pray that you would bring healing, wholeness, nourishment to our souls this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen and amen.